Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the only back issue of TV Zone that never seemed to sell out was issue 10 with a plug for Doctor Who and the Web Planet on the front. You people have no taste. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers that no one else ever seems to is comedian, musician, writer, journalist, well, if I list it all, it's going to take the whole show, Mitch Ben. <laughs> Mitch, what are you up to? Where can we find it? Oh, uh, well, online, basically, is where you can find me these days, because that's the only place anything is happening. Basically, uh, I'm, I'm, oh, oh, yes, because I'm listening back to my my, my old show, uh, the previous one I did with you, and there's a few things I say too, far too often, and basically is one of them. So just a second, I'm about to write the word basically on a bit of paper in front of me. <laughs> In Sharpie, like I'm Donald bloody Trump. There you go. Basically, stop saying basically. I right now am primarily, shall we say, working online. Uh, my Patreon is a desperately needed lifeline in these peculiar times in which we find ourselves. So I'm doing a lot of stuff on Patreon. Had quite a nice little viral hit with a song called We're Allowed to Swear on This, Aren't We? Absolutely. Yeah, a song called Fuck All, which I uh, put out right at the beginning of lockdown, which actually went properly viral, ironically enough. It was it was kind of kind of amazing watching the sheer speed at which this thing went around the world, but also kind of terrifying. You know, you find yourself thinking about the poor sods in John Ronson's book. Thinking, you know, what must it be like to watch something bad about you suddenly take off and go around the world? So uh, that was kind of uh, fun, but kind of daunting. And in the meantime, I'm now weirdly doing a, a, a weirdly. That's another word I say too often. Let me just write that down. Weirdly. Stop saying weirdly. I'm also doing a semi-regular slot on Matt Shirley show on times radio on a thursday lunchtime so that's become like a weekly thing i just turn up on that and have a bit of a chat and do a song i am about to relaunch my science fiction trilogy the terror trilogy it is complete and i'm biting the bullet it will be relaunched properly in new editions with new covers with a view to being completed in the new year so the first terror book is going to come out again uh, between now and the end of the year then the second one is going to be re-released at the beginning of next year and then the third and final long-awaited part Terror's War will be coming out in March. That's the plan anyway. Well, it's a pity, though, in some ways, that there aren't five volumes of that, because that would have given me a perfect <laughs> link into your first choice. Now, this advert, I didn't realise it seared into my brain, and it now is again, thanks to you. So let's have the same effect on everyone else. Wafer and fondant too. Right, okay, that was very obviously. Well, I don't know whether it was not Manfred Man or not, because it sounds like it might be the genuine article that he sold them to me, but we'll come back to that in a minute. That was that bit for 54321. Mitch, what was this? It was a kind of a rival Twix, wasn't it? Primarily. There were occasionally sort of challenges to. Twix's crown as the two-in-a-packet biscuity snack. I remember one, was there one called Raider at one point? That's like a very faint bell. But I think that it being a sort of a more wafer-based affair rather than a biscuit-based affair as, as your, your proper Twix is. But this is primarily, I think, remembered for the advert rather than the biscuit itself. Because, yeah, it was a reworded version of 54321 by Man From Man, a very authentically rendered version of Man From Man's 54321, although obviously not entirely the original because the original was patently not about a biscuit. What 
of the things, it suddenly dawned on me when I was, actually when I was trying to think of things to mention on this show, because I think the most popular thing I did last time was the two-stage self-assembly ice cream cone. So I was trying to think of another idiosyncratic sweet or, or, or bit of confectionery. And suddenly I remember that it was only years after this biscuit had completely been and gone, because I think it was only around for about a year, that I suddenly realised, wait a minute, that was Rick Mail in the advert. It was! That's the um, spaceman! <laughs> yes! Yeah! Yes! Rick Mail tries and fails to eat one of these in a space helmet, and then makes a classic Rick Mail oh for fuck's sake face. I think something which would be worth compiling at some point is the silent and or uncredited appearances of Rick Mail. Because, of course, everybody knows that he's in the pub at the beginning of American Werewolf and doesn't have any lines. He just sits there looking weird. He's asleep on a train in Eye of the Needle starring Donald Sutherland. There's a bit early on in Eye of the Needle where Donald Sutherland, is ca- as a German spy in Britain during the war, catches a train and there's a couple of unconscious sailors in there and one of them is very visibly Rick Mayle. But yes, there he is in this advert, trying and failing to eat a chocolate bar through a space helmet. Well, there's very little concrete evidence out there of anything to do with 54321. I couldn't even find out who made it, but my memory is... It's not an easy thing to Google, is the thing. It's not an easy thing to Google, is it? These thoughtless bastards in the 80s coming up with brand names that were going to be impossible (laughs) to Google 40 years later. Show some consideration for subsequent generations, you bastards. But I reckon that advert must have been around 1981, just from when I remember it. Yeah. And when you think of he went almost, a bit like Alexis Sale did, a bit like Rowan Atkinson had done a couple of years earlier, they had this weird ascent where they went overnight from doing, you know, bit parts in things and just popping up as guests on things to stardom. And Rick definitely yeah. did that. He was, you can't say he was nowhere then he was everywhere, because he was actually everywhere. He was doing things like this. But... He was unknown one minute and household name the next. And that in itself is quite fascinating. I think the turning point is Kevin Turvey, wasn't it? That was the turning yeah. point for Rick was Kevin Turvey. Because I know he'd been doing, you know, the Dangerous Brothers with Aid as a cabaret thing in the original comic strip club and that, and that sort of thing. And, and he sort of, he invented a Rick at a, at a poetry evening at Manchester University, famously. It was <laughs> apparently found himself dragged to a dreadful poetry evening at Manchester University in about 1980 and sat there bored out of his mind and then just wrote some poems on a fag packet about Thatcher and just got up and did them in a silly voice and completely ruined the evening for everybody <laughs> that legend has it is how he came up with Rick but yes the turning point was definitely Kevin Turvey because of course on kick up the 80s he was credited as Kevin Turvey he wasn't credited as Rick Mayle and so when I saw the first trailers for the young ones about six months later I thought Kevin Turvey was in the sitcom and I was kind of, you know, confused as to who is this Rick Mayle character and why does he look so much like Kevin Turvey? Pretty much all of Kevin Turvey, I think, is up on YouTube, including the Kevin Turvey, the man behind the green door, the sort of documentary that he did. But that was a magnificent bit of, of opportunity seized because, again, I, I read an interview with Rick Mayle a few years ago and he's talking about how he and his mate Jeff Posner came up with Kevin Turvey, which was that initially he was approached, I think, to be in the cast of Kick Up the 80s, which was this, as I'm sure you and most of our listeners will recall was this early 80s sort of mooted replacement for Not the Nine O'Clock News which was being wound up around that time it was going to be this I think vaguely satirical sketch show and Tracy Ullman was in it wasn't she yeah. um, so there's some, there some fairly major people were in it but apparently they, they wanted Rick Mail to be in the ensemble and he didn't fancy being in the ensemble so having turned that down they then came back to him and said well do you want a four minute slot 
do you want to just do like a four minute piece to camera? And he and Jeff Posner, apparently this, this sent them into sort of, you know, spasms of anxiety. Well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with this four minute slot? How can we take it? You know, it's, it's BBC two. It's 9 PM. It's, it's everything we've been working for. How do we do? What do you do with this? Four minute? We mustn't waste it. We mustn't waste this slot. We're so, no, nah, fuck it, waste it, waste the slot. <laughs> Don't do a damn thing with it. Just, 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 just sit there and be as boring and inconsequential as it can possibly be. And that was how they came up with Kevin Turvey. Just perversely, let's deliberately piss away four minutes of screen time on national TV a week. It was only when Rick Mail died that I realised that he and Aid had been my rock stars in the 1980s because at the time when you're supposed to be obsessing about bands and you know feverishly awaiting a given band's new album i had exactly the same kind of level of fascination and devotion to rick and aid they were my because back in the 80s if you weren't into the smiths and i wasn't into the smiths there wasn't really an awful lot of music to get obsessed about so musically i spent most of the time i think much like yourself obsessing about 60s psychedelia <laughs> which is why the only smith song i like is how soon is now but instead giving all my sort of obsession and devotion to the comedians of the day specifically rick and eight i remember fondly them transitioning from their young ones phase to their dangerous brothers phase and then to their filthy rich and cat Clap phase and then i mean it's funny i've spent all day on twitter moderating arguments between people who insist bad news was or wasn't stolen from Spinal Tap. Which it, it absolutely wasn't, no. Yeah, it was a genuine coincidence. Uh, partly, I mean, Tap first appeared, did their first sort of TV appearances in about 79-80, so they were probably the first to actually get it broadcast anywhere, but I don't think there was a, a lot of awareness about that in Britain when they came to do Bad News. And of course, the first two movies, Bad News Tour, was on Channel 4 a good year before the Spinal Tap movie came out in this country. The other thing to remember about Bad News Spinal Tap is they're parodying very, very different kinds of bands. Yes. Okay, they're both ostensibly hard rock, but the point is, speaking of somebody who's been in and out of band since his teens, the point is this, Spinal Tap is the band you dread ending up in. <laughs> Bad News is the band you were in when you were 18. Everybody who's in a band dreads ending up in Spinal Tap, but everybody who's in a band has already been in Bad News. And the, the only real similarity is, is a pure coincidence is that, the, you know, the guys playing the lead singer both wore the same wig. Mike and Abe both went for that wig when they were playing the lead singer you know but they're very very different but yeah I'm, so I'm, I'm a massive fan of Spinal Tap and Bad News and there's absolutely no contradiction between those I was a devoted follower of Rick and Aid in the 80s in the way that you're supposed to be a devoted follower of rock bands and the other thing about Rick is you've got to say that he was sort of the George Orwell of alternative comedy because much as George Orwell got shot in the neck fighting fascism in Spain and then came back and wrote the two most withering critiques of communism in the English language Rick Mayle provided back in the 80s both the definitive parody of the steel-hearted Tory bastard and the useless fucking lefty. Yes! He provided both archetypes. The useless winching lefty with Rick and also the absolute ruthless Tory bastard of Alan Bastard. He, he, you know, he nailed both ends of the... Both the most stupid extremities of the 1980s political spectrum. He skewered both of them. Well, I've just thought now, literally just now, of a possible reason how he ended up in that advert, which is I'm convinced 
it is actually Paul Jones from Man From Man singing on the 543 song <laughs> advert. Could now, well be. Rick's first TV, as far as I know, first proper TV doing his comedy, was a very weird show from 1980 called Boom Boom Out Go the where basically oh, yeah. everyone from the comic strip kind of came on and did their bit. And in between, Paul Jones's band, the blues band, did sarcastic songs about Margaret Thatcher. Of and so course. it's possible that he said, do you know, I did this programme with this bloke and he'd be really funny doing this bit. You know, it's pure speculation there, but... Yeah, it's a long shot because, I mean, unless adverts are done very, very differently now, I don't think there's a lot of creative communication going backwards and forwards between no. the people doing the casting and the guy brought in to sing the, uh, to sing the jingle. But given that if that was, in fact, the real Paul Jones brought in to sing it, then, yeah, you might well pay more attention to his ideas and just, you know, the random session guy brought in to fake Paul Jones for the advert. But do you remember what the five well-component parts were of the 54321? Because I don't oh remembering yeah. the song. I don't think I knew all the lyrics at the time. Wait a minute, wait a minute, so wait a minute, fast. wait a minute. I'm, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get this. I'm not going to get the guitar, I'm going to get it because I'm going to try my bit. So, chocolate flavour coating comes first in 54321. Then bite into light crispy rice, 54321. Choo, 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 the caramel topping, 54321. Wait for a fondant to, uh-huh, 54321. Thank you, thank you. Rapturous applause. There you go. Those so are there the, were only four the... then. Well, I know, I know, but, but wafer and fondant just get kind of brushed aside briefly, but they do count as two separate co- components, <laughs> I believe. There you go. Yeah, but that's what I mean about that advert. I mean, I can remember the words to that better than I can remember the words to the actual 54321. That's often the case, isn't it? Well, and also, there was that thing around there. That, I mean, I know some of these brands pre-existed all of this, but in the early 80s, there was a boom of kind of sweets, chocolate bars having not just a branding type name but like a concept you know things like united and ipso and the bandit yeah. advert that he couldn't show now you know you can stand it with bandit get your chin off the floor with all the senoritas clicking their fingers yes. and so on yes. this was very much part of that and the weird thing is is i remember it being everywhere at one point and like i say now you can't even find out who manufactured it i thought it was roundtree mackintosh but it looks like it wasn't yeah again you know an ungoogleable name i mean five four three two one i mean what how much how much are you going to come up with if you try and google that okay well having resolutely failed to pin down any actual statistical details about five four three two one at all i have a feeling that we're both going to know a lot more about your next choice which in its own way is numbers related as well <laughs>
Okay, if I said the Logan's Run theme, you would not be thinking of that. You'd be thinking of the movie theme. But this is actually the theme from the TV adaptation of Logan's Run. Well, actually, continuation rather than adaptation. I remember this very faintly, but very vividly, if that's possible. Mitch, how well do you remember it? I think I saw this before I saw the movie. I think this is the yeah. first version of Logan's Run that I was aware of. Yeah, I mean, that theme tune, it would be okay were it not for the unbelievably over-enthusiastic do noises. I mean, <laughs> it's like a classic example of, of, of taking something that was quite a popular at the time and just running with it far too hard. There's quite a nice tune under there, under all the oh noises, just just cool it with the do do noises. I mean, you know, just just have them as tasteful counterpoints, like you know that the Amy Ward version of Ring My Bell. That's how you use those things. I remember this being on ITV on a Saturday afternoon. It's sort of, I don't think it was deliberate counterprogramming to Doctor Who the way that Buck Rogers in the 25th century very much was a few years later, but it was occupying a sort of a similar kind of time slot, being early Saturday evenings. But like I said, I think I saw this before I saw the movie. I don't think I saw Logan's on when it came out. Logan's on the movie. I think it's primarily remembered sort of by sci-fi historians as being the last big sci-fi movie before Star Wars. It came out the previous summer. It was the big sci-fi movie of 76. And I remember there being a bit of publicity with regards to its release. I remember Logan's Run getting quite a lot of attention. But I'm fairly sure I didn't see the Logan's Run movie until it started showing up on TV, which had probably been the early 80s. And even then, sort of like quite heavily trimmed because it's a bit dirty in you know, a way that this TV show really isn't. Logan's Run, I think that the movie certainly is probably more influential than people give it credit for because there's a, a new version of Brave New World just started on Sky TV, which absolutely owes at least as much to the movie of Logan's Run as it does to Aldous Huxley. So I remember this starting up and it starts off with a truncated remake of the movie, basically, with, you know, Logan and Jessica fleeing from the city, pursued by Francis. So, you know, they reenact, the, well, they don't reenact, they just edit in the carousel sequence from the movie, except it's somewhat slightly sanitised in this version. People just kind of disappear in a flash of sort of Star Trek transporter-like special effect rather than actually burst into flames the way they do in the movie. But also in this one, Logan is played by a guy called Gregory Harrison, who, as far as I, the only other thing I remember him being in is Razorback. You know, the, the only is he other in Razorback? The, I didn't realise that. I'm fairly <laughs> sure he's the lead in Razorback. I seem to call seeing Razorback, I think Alex Cox put it on in his movie drone slot in the sort of late 80s, early yeah. 90s, and thinking, way, it's TV Logan. He's a more sympathetic character than Michael York's Logan. Because the thing about Logan in the first in the movie is it's kind of difficult to decide at what point you're actually supposed to start liking him. Because he's a real prick for the for at least <laughs> the first half hour. Because he's not just a sort of an, an unquestioning adherence to the laws of the city. He basically fucking loves it. He and Francis really get off on shooting unarmed people. I mean, this is made absolutely clear. This is not just some, you know, weary duty he undertakes. He gets a real boner from shooting unarmed people. He only goes on the run because A, he is instructed to do so by the evil supercomputer. And B, the evil supercomputer leaves him no choice because it suddenly flashes him forward four years and his life clock starts flashing. And his only question when he sets off for his secret mission is, wait a minute, if I do this, do I get my four years back? I'm not sure what point in the first in the movie you're actually meant to start sympathising with him because he's a real dick to begin with. Heroism is very much foisted upon him. Whereas in the TV show, probably just to speed things up a bit, this Logan actually genuinely has a crisis of conscience and goes on the run. 
he actually starts questioning the rules of the city and gets a bit, you know, distressed at constantly having to shoot unarmed people. So he goes on the run as regards to a real crisis of conscience. They also totally tweak the city's big dirty secret, which is in the TV show. In the movie, it's just run by an evil supercomputer. And you get the impression that this was probably, you know, much as in Aldous Huxley, this was first conceived as a benign way for the human race to spend its time, but has become, you know, evil and oppressive and blah, blah, blah. Whereas in this one, the whole thing's a crock of shit because there's a secret cabal of old he's running the whole thing and francis when he is sent off out of the city to pursue logan is basically offered the chance to live to a ripe old age if he brings logan back so the whole thing is you know the, the city itself is more openly evil rather than just sort of oppressive and misguided but then once you're outside the city it's basically got fuck all to do with logan's run and just kind of becomes a another post-apocalyptic sci-fi show because they hook up with this sort of pre-data quirky android played by Donald Moffat called Rem. They just managed to acquire this sort of bizarre solar-powered RV and set off into the, you know, the, the wilderness and start encountering various other colleges of people who have survived whatever it was that destroyed the world that forced everybody to go and live in the city of Dallas. From the first episode onwards, it doesn't have a hell of a lot to do with Logan's Run. And I think it's... Have you seen much of it? Because it's up on Amazon. I just when I found it recently, I... I Part of the reason I'm, I'm bringing it up is that I found it recently on Amazon and, and, and bought it because I thought I would not mind seeing that again. But have you seen much of it? I haven't seen it since it was on. So my memories, although right. very clear of it existing, are very hazy. I remember sort of flashes of it. Like, isn't there an episode where, because obviously Rem's an android, it looks like a human, and they there's some computer that's interrogating them and it can't process the fact that Rem is neither male nor female and it throws a wobbler. I remember things like that. And the really weird thing is when rem first appeared in the mid 80s because you know <laughs> they were one of those bands that you heard about them a long time before you heard them and when you saw their name written down in melody maker or whatever you thought it was rem and i just assumed because there were americans who looked a bit kind of sci-fi nerdy i thought they'll be named after that robot from logan's named after run the android, named after the android from logan's run. oh that's wonderful now i mean the thing is i think it's fair to say that it has not aged brilliantly and in actual fact a lot of it probably didn't look that great at the time and also it's another one of these things that I think it came out basically as Star Wars was coming out, which then totally, you know, reordered everybody's expectation of what science fiction was supposed to look like. There is one really good episode there called Man Out of Time, which was written by David Gerald, who's one of the mainstays of Star Trek, although he writes it under a pseudonym, in which the regulars are kind of supporting characters and the protagonist is a scientist from the 22nd century. And he projects himself forward in time to try and get enough information about how the world ended to see if he could prevent it from ending. But he's aware of the fact while he's doing this, that should he succeed, all his new pals in this post-apocalyptic world are going to get erased from history. So he can't tell them what he's doing, because what he is doing is trying to prevent their existence. And it ends with a really quite decent twist, which I won't spoil in case anybody's thinking of checking this out. It's of its time. It's a bit clunky. It's an interesting adjunct to the film, I would say. The thing that you miss most from the film, let's be honest, is Jenny Agatha. Isn't it Heather Menzies in this, who was one of the Von Trapps in The Sound of Music? There seems to be a thing in the late 70s of former Von Trapps turning up in genre shows, because of course Nicholas Hammond, who was TV Spider-Man, was also a Von Trapp kid. (laughs) She's a decent enough actress, and very pretty in a sort of rather more kind of corn-fed sort of way, but she's no Jenny Agatha, let's put it that way. (laughs) 
Um, it's always quite interesting the way ITV presented things like this because it only ran to 14 episodes, which I didn't realise. And, you know, obviously in America, these things came and went quite quickly. I don't think there was even any merchandise for this, but ITV would always show them, even if the show had ended in America already, as like, here's your next best favourite big adventure thing. Yeah, despite the fact it had already died on its arse and the yeah. states had been cancelled. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, they really got the money out of their investment, didn't they? I think they did, yes. Well, it was decent early Saturday afternoon sort of low-impact sci-fi for the kids. And like I said, it's an interesting adjunct to the movie. Um, okay, well, obviously, you know, Logan's Run was shown on ITV and there will have been ad breaks at annoying parts of it throughout. So I'm wondering if you <laughs> may have taken the opportunity to play with your next choice, where there's absolutely nothing I can use as a clip for this. So it's the only piece of music I could go for. Here it is. So just one look and then my heart went boom suddenly and we were on the Okay, that was obviously Zoom by Fat Larry's band, and it's here to introduce Matchbox Zoomy Balloonies. This is going back to the absolute furthest recesses of my memory. I remember this being something. I've still got a lot of my childhood toys. They're in a big box at my mum's house. I've still got pretty much all of my Star Wars figures. I've still got my Dennis Fisher Doctor Who figures. I've still got a lot of my old board games. These were talking the very early 70s. So when I was, I'm guessing, like three or four years old, these are something that I seem to call my dad would bring home if he'd been away for more than a couple of days. This is sort of, I don't know, my dad apparently, I, I don't have memories of him being away on business much, but he seems to have been sort of haunted by the notion that he wasn't as present as he would like to have been for my for my very early years. But I don't remember that in that way at all. But he used to bring these things home for us to play with together. They were balloon-powered toy cars. Kind of a very, very primitive version of the jet engine principle. If you imagine a sort of matchbox-sized toy car with a nozzle on the top, which leads to a tube that pokes out the back. And you can pretty much see where this is going. The idea would be that you would blow up a balloon and attach it, I forget by what means exactly, to the nozzle on the top of the car and then let it go. And the resulting rush of air out of that rear exhaust would propel the car forward. And I seem to call they also made a kind of high-pitched whining noise as they did this. So they probably had a kind of a party blower thing inside them. I can find very, very little mention of them online. So I think, as with the Orion musical, this may be one of those things that I alone remember. Can you find much about them? No, there isn't really very much. There are photos of some of them out there, but I couldn't even find a complete list of Apparently there were 12 of them that were launched in 1970, and they all kind of right. like Hanna-Barbera racing cars. I think it's post Yeah, races. They've all got names yeah, got that like yeah. Webbed Wonder, Mean Mother, which is a bit surprised by. Yeah, there were 12 exactly. of them. I can only find the names of four of them, so people haven't even catalogued that. And you'd think they'd be, you know, looking like they do and having that novelty factor. You'd think people remember them more. But that's sad. I don't know if any would still work now. you probably have to fit a new balloon to them. I forget whether the balloons are actually an integral part of the car or whether you blew them up separately and attached them too. But they were, yeah, I remember them being just a really fun thing. But it is odd, isn't it, the way some of these things just don't make that kind of cultural impact. I mean, it's, it's like we were talking about last time. The 1970s kind of saw almost the death of the non-merchandise toy line. And these, while, 
you're right. The few pictures I managed to find online do have a slightly sort of Hanna-Barbera wacky races look to them. They're not tied in with anything else. They're not. Had these been a wacky races time, then yes, somebody would have been, people out there would have been slavishly collecting all of them. But they weren't. They were just a, a freestanding toy line. I certainly don't have any left. But for some reason, when I was racking my brain to think of things to go, because a lot of the stuff I come up with when I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, no, 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 no. The point is you're trying to come up with stuff that nobody else remembers or that very few other people remember. And I'm thinking, yeah, we could do, you know, all the other toys from the 70s. You could do Stretch Armstrong. We could do the, you know, the Evil Knievel stunt cycle, which I didn't have and always wanted, despite the fact I played with them at my friend's house. So I already knew they were shit, but for some reason I still wanted one. Or, you know, um, all the rest of them, you scale extracts and everything. Yeah, everybody remembers those. You're Weebles Wobble, but they don't fall down. Everybody remembers did you want that Hulk that you blew up with kind of hand bellows and he got bigger and bigger and the cage fell apart? Because I, I really wanted that. that. And I don't know well, anyone else who remembers it. Hulk. All I know is I remember having a conversation with a boy from down the road saying I'd seen this Hulk and it got bigger and bigger and the cage broke open. And he said, what happens to the bits of the cage? Do they go on the floor? And that's <laughs> me, a fundamentally important question I've not considered. Yes. The only evidence I've got that it existed is I remember that conversation. Inflatable Toy Hulk. I'm guessing that was tied in with the TV show in some way then, yeah? It must have been. Although, no, it might have predated it slightly. I'm not 100% sure about that. I'm not sure the Hulk would have been a big enough deal for that kind of merch prior to the TV show. I mean, obviously people knew he was. But I remember when the TV show starting already being aware of the comic book character Hulk and being aware of how the TV version differed from the comic book version. I remember it being great fun, but also incredibly formulaic. You'd always get precisely two Hulk outs, two Hulk outs per app. One at about halfway, just to remind everybody that this is what he does, and then one at the end in which he saves the day in some way. Because I already remember that Bill Bixby had, was already quite a big deal because he'd been in that thing, The Magician, and I remember The Magician being on. Bixby was already, you know, an established big deal on American TV when he got that, the Incredible Hulk job. But yeah, so I don't remember the inflatable Hulk. But these, say, these Zoomy Balloonies, I was just trying to delve down into the absolute deepest recesses of my memory, and that's what they came up with. So if anybody out there knows anything more about them, were they Matchbox? Is that what they were made by? They appear to be Matchbox, but again, I couldn't find out whether they originated somewhere else and were licensed by Matchbox, which was yes. what happened quite often, or whether yeah, we they were, were a Matchbox that. invention. Yeah. In fact, was it Matchbox who did the... It would have been around the time of the Hulk TV series, the Marvel toy vans, where it was all based on the same formula, where you know, it was a van with the character's logo on the side, and you opened it up, and had yeah. computers inside, so just about, you could accept Captain America, you know, having a van with computers in, Spider-Man at a push, the Hulk... No, those computers that he used all yes. the time. You know? Oh, yeah, but it's just that sort of random advertising because you're always getting... You, I remember thinking that at the time, that you, you would get a lot of Spider-Man merchandise that just completely ignored the whole point of the Spider-Man <laughs> character, which is that he's essentially this nobody who operates out of his bedroom you know he's not bruce wayne he does not have you know a spider copter <laughs> he does not have a a spider mobile he's a college student cop reporter okay he does not have billions of dollars to spider-man in particular was the one that used to annoy me when they used to do that just that's not what spider-man is <laughs> But yes, the, the toy car market in the 70s was quite interesting because you, you had Corgi, when they would get the license, they would bring everything out in two different sizes. Yeah. You get the Corgi and the Corgi Juniors. So a lot of us had, for example, the 60s TV Batmobile in the sort of the four inch version with, you know, like the pingy missile that you would lose after, you know, two days and the little Batman that you could sit in the chair that you would lose after six days. And also just the sort of the one inch or sort of the inch and a half Corgi Juniors version. The toy car market in the 70s is a 
fascinating thing. It really was. It really was, because you got things like, there was a Liberator from Blake Seven. Yeah, I got that somewhere. Even given how big Blake Seven was, the Liberator isn't something you would think kids would want to toy with that, but they really did. I remember everyone having the small Liberator. Was there ever a big one? I'm yeah, sure. I had that one. I don't know. I think I may even have my Dinky Liberator somewhere. My tiny, I would say Dinky, I mean that as an adjective as opposed to, it suddenly occurs to me, the rival brand name. <laughs> the other one was Dinky Toys. These are Dinky and Corgi, you know, much as we had the, you know, the Marvel and DC of ice cream last time, they were kind of the Marvel and DC of toy cars, weren't they? Again, Corgi were Marvel and Dinky were DC, so let's not even bother with that conversation. Dinky had a weird way of recolouring everything, though, didn't they? Because they were the ones who came up with the blue Thunderbird 2 and the, yeah. the Eagle Transport with the green nose. They seemed to particularly have decided that Jerry Anderson stuff was way too monochrome, and so their versions of it rose far more colourful. Yeah, I've never seen the satisfactory explanation, because that is the sort of thing he would get very grumpy about, but I don't think I ever saw him comment on it at all. No, I don't, because the Eagle is, you know, one of the coolest designs for Spaceship ever, and I'm not sure why giving it a green nose made it cooler. But yeah, the Dinky ones had a green nose, whereas on TV they were white, very definitely white. And Thunderbird 2 was very definitely green, but Dinky's was blue, and I don't really remember. Thunderbird 1 is blue, you weirdo. Thunderbird 3 is red, 4 is yellow, 5 is kind of silver and hangs in spec. We all know this. We're going to do the 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 song again, but back is about Thunderbird. Yeah. <laughs> Zoomy balloonies that were a riot of colour. You think of even the tie-in toy cars in the 70s being, you know, a single colour. These are, they look like somebody's throwing a pizza into the Stargate sequence of 2001. It's just like, it's like a rejected Stone Roses single cover. <laughs> it could well be that that might have contributed to their downfall, because what's the betting that those colours are actually like rather cheaply applied stickers? And it could well be that, particularly since this is a toy car in which, let's face it, moisture is going to be a factor. It could well be that they just <laughs> literally didn't physically last very long. That could be the problem. They, they, they may be actually physically degenerated at a higher rate than your average toy car, and that could be why you don't see them anymore. You know, this stuff was built to be played with and broken and thrown away. You know, you know the, the people making this stuff were not thinking in terms of making collector's items. They were making toys that you give to kids who played with them and broke them and got bored of them and got new ones for Christmas. Well, I did once see somebody trying to sell a damaged version of the car from remember Vegas, the American detective series. <laughs> about Dan Tanner, the prime. I remember it being on, but I remember not watching it. It was Robert Urich, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, there was a Corgi Vegas car, and somebody was selling a damaged one Uh on eBay a while back, and I thought, yeah, Good luck with that. I'm not sure people buy even a <laughs> one of it. It wasn't one I watched, but I do remember that all the cop shows would get their tie-in Corky and or Dinky car. So obviously, you know, the, the red and white Gran Torino from Starsky and Hutch. We all had the red and white Gran Torino from Starsky and Hutch. I remember somebody bringing out Kojak's car, yeah. which is weird because Kojak didn't have a particularly memorable car the way Starsky and Hutch did. And that's, that was rather curious. And also, these weren't kids shows. Starsky and Hutch was fairly, you know, PG rated by the standard of some other cop shows, but it wasn't a kid show. It was on, you know, quite late on a Saturday night in this country. I don't know what uh, scheduling was like in the States, but these would get fairly heavily kid merchandise for stuff that, for things that were not kid oriented shows. That's odd when you think of it. It's like, you know, them bringing out corky cars, of, you know, Martin Compton's car from Line of Duty. You know what I mean? It's, it's just, <laughs> what, you know, why would they do that? But that's what they did back then. There wasn't the professional yeah, there was, there was the, bring yeah. with the figures of all three of them, including Cowley. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then the professionals is absolutely not a kid's show. That was actually, the, the whole, it was, went out of its way to be sort of, you know, about as edgy as you could be for 1979. But yeah, you're absolutely right. They brought out Bodie and Doris Capri. I remember that as well. So it just seemed to be the way that, you know, if a TV 
show had in any way a noticeable car than Adam Kane. I mean, you know, one would have expected stuff like, oh, the, the XJS from Return of the Saint. I think I may even have had a toy Volvo P1600 from the Saint because that was still getting repeated on, on ITV when I was very young. I mean, I remember everybody remembers the Lotus Esprit from Spy Who Loved Me yeah. with like the retractable fins. So it sort of did the submarine conversion. Not quite, but it sort of did that. And, re- and I seem to call it being covered in labels saying, don't play with this in the bath, you weirdos. <laughs> uh, you know, this, this, we know you're going to, but we're just telling you not to anyway, so it's not our fault when it rusts a bit. But I remember that. But also, I seem to call that right up in the 70s, you could still get... You know, the gold-fingered DB5 with the pop-up bullet shield from Thunderball and the rotating number plates and all that. So I seem to recall you could still get that, despite the fact that that was, that, you know, that was from a Bond film that was a good 10 years previously at the time. But yeah, that was just it. If it was a car in a TV show, then add it came, even if it was in no way a kid's TV. I think perhaps they were cognizant of the fact that it was grown up. Maybe that just gives the light on what I said about 10 minutes ago. Maybe in that case, they did know that they were marketing to grown-up collectors at least as much to kids who were going to play with them. Well, I'm wondering who your next choice was actually marketed at. We're staying with toys for the moment <laughs> and two characters in a very popular range that I had actually forgotten existed. It's the Action Man team on patrol looking for the intruder. Strongman from another world. Action Man spots him with his eagle eyes. Too late. The intruder's got Tom Stone in a vicious bear hug. Atomic Man lets him have it with an atomic right. The intruder is stunned, but not for long, and the chase is on. Action Man checks out under water in the Sea Wolf, the action team submarine that actually dives and surfaces. No luck. He takes to the skies with his turbocopter and spots the intruder's hideout from above. This is a job for Bullet Man, the human bullet. That'll flush him out. And here comes Action Man in the capture copter. Mission accomplished. Action Man. Okay, that's an advert introducing Action Man, Atomic Man and Bullet Man. Yes, there seemed to be a sort of an abortive attempt towards the late 70s to create the kind of Action Man extended universe. Because as is often the case, as we're talking about, so many of the toys that we talk about in the show that you talk about in the previous one with me and with other people turn out to be rebadged foreign brands. Now, I, like I think most people, had been aware of Action Man for my entire youth before I discovered that it was G.I. Joe. I didn't get an action man, actually, until quite late on. I used to have another character. I used to have a figure that I got when I was very little called Cowboy Kid, who I seem to recall is also a rebranded American toy. And he was a very solidly constructed cowboy figure who happened to be the right size and dimensions for you to use Action Man accessories with him. He could stand up unaided much better than the Action Man of the time. Johnny West, that's what he's called. Again, he was a rebadged American character. And he was a good figure. He was actually really kind of solid. And I seem to call him looking a bit like Gregory Peck. And so I had him. And then I finally got an Action Man, I think, when Cowboy Kid finally fell to bits towards the end of the 70s. I got an Action Man in about 77, 78. would have been about seven or eight years old. But around that same time, I think I had Atomic Man. I don't think I had Bullet Man. And I can't remember why I acquired Atomic Man. But there were, were there not, in kind of pop culture in general, in the late 70s, quite a few sort of $6 million man knockoffs. I remember in the very early days of 2000 AD, they had a character called Mark One, who was just basically a Steve Austin knockoff, wasn't he? Yeah, he was sort of 
powered by some kind of weird drug that they pumped him full of rather than being full of cybernetic implants. But in terms of story arc, he was very much a kind of Steve Austin knockoff. And Atomic Man was sort of a Steve Austin knockoff both thematically and materially because he was, again, a lot of these things sort of came because they weren't tied into a, anything with a narrative like a TV show or a movie. They sort of came with their own little pre-packaged narrative, often sort of written on the box or in, in sort of the adverts that Atomic Man had an atomic heart, which sounds a bit like a pretty fast way of getting leukemia. Or and, Pink Floyd and, and album. Had, or a Pink Floyd album and had sort of various mechanical implants in his arms and legs and everything. And also, so the atomic heart basically consisted of a thing. He was a fairly standard action man character, except with a few alterations. So the atomic heart was a sort of a, a thing in his chest that had a black button in the middle of it that went click click when you press it and that's basically all it was and he had I seem to recall did he have sort of translucent arms and legs with cybernetic bits inside them visibly and then the fun thing was he had this weird sort of refracting system which was supposed to make his eyeball flash but what it was was a kind of a bit of translucent plastic connected from the back of one of his eyes going up to ostensibly a hole in the back of his head and the way you would get his eye to flash was by standing him under a light source and then putting your finger on and off this hole and that would make his eyeball flash <laughs> so that was atomic man he was kind of their six million dollar man knockoff but then you had bullet man who i did not have but i remember being out at the time and i've looked him up in the meantime and discovered that he is way more bizarre looking than i remember him the odd thing is the advanced photos of the new suicide squad movie is written by james gunn john cena's costume as peacemaker in the new suicide squad costume is highly reminiscent of the bullet man <laughs> because he, he wears a sort of pointed domed chrome helmet like a bullet other than that he wears a kind of a bizarre sort of high-hipped legless leotard thing it's like big daddy's costume isn't it yeah it is it's like a sort of 1970s wrestler's costume with sort of bare legs and big red boots and he has also apropos of nothing much in particular metal arms and I cannot remember what, if anything, they gave Bullet Man by way of backstory. But he was just a kind of action man, but a superhero, but an action man. And I seem to recall, I could be wrong about this, but I seem to recall them turning up around about the same kind of time in the late 70s. And Atomic Man was, you say he was their cybernetically enhanced action man and bullet man. Although he had, you know, big Bucky Barnes style metal arms, he was kind of the superhero version of action man. So I'm not very familiar with the history of them. I mean, I'm assuming that these are also rebadged G.I. Joes because I don't think Palatoy would have the initiative to make them up for themselves. Or I could be mistaken about that. Well, I've not been able to find out and what alarmed me the most about atomic man was his hair is you know you've got the standard action man hair this is much wilder it's like somebody tried to make a toothbrush of mike lindup from level 42 that's (laughs) what his hair reminded me of it's really quite astonishing you know he's not good for undercover missions really no he's got a slightly bigger fro than your standard action man i forgot about that yeah because standard action man has basically got a buzz cut achieved by means of gluing a thin layer of drum carpet over his head but you're right atomic man's got a, a sort of a medium length throw with a hole in the middle of it that makes it look like he's had some kind of partially successful brain surgery but is it actually i think that may have been in emulation of because i'm sure again like i say he was both thematically and materially a six million dollar man knockoff because the figure owes quite a bit to the six million dollar man figure which was around at the time which was this big junky plastic effort who had 
essentially a hole bored through his head so that you could look through his bionic eye. Because it didn't really have any enhancements or anything, did it? You could just see through his eye. Yeah, you could just look through his head. I think it may have had a slight fisheye thing going on, uh, akin to, you know, those little security holes that you could look through your front door. It might have been something like that, but it didn't look good. It basically looked a lot like Steve Austin had been shot in the face. But I, I remember the $6 million man figure, because his, his cybernetic implants are actually quite interesting. They had a sort of strange condom-like layer of rubber skin on his arms and legs you could peel back and there were then bits of circuitry embedded into the plastic which you could then pop out so if you're talking about this, it's one of those things that it's difficult to explain now just how big a deal that show was i mean how many years did it run for it kind of run for very long it kind of went for more than about three or four seasons but it was it was a really big deal when it was on well it even had its own spin-off really which became its own well the bionic woman yeah. Its own right yeah yeah but like you say obviously they were angling for an action man expanded universe because there were so many yeah. more figures that you think about there was Tom Stone who was kind of his junior associate there was Ron the Space Knight who wasn't in America part of Action Man but he was branded as that over here there was the intruder who was a villain there was what I always called Action Man's mate with a beard who apparently doesn't have a name another Action Man figure but with a beard Action Man head but yeah there was sometimes you got Action Man with a beard yeah it was just it was just a, a variation upon Action Man but yeah bearded Action Man was quite rare and sought after as I recall had the same little scar as all the rest of them. Yeah, it was a fascinating thing. And then it kind of went all a bit weird in the 90s, didn't it? The whole thing got sort of completely rebranded. That weird thing that happened to action figures across the broad in the 90s, they suddenly all became ridiculously muscly. Do you remember those stupidly pumped up Star Wars figures that came out in the 90s? I don't, and I'm glad I don't, actually. No, there was there was like a line of Star Wars figures that came out in the 90s, but they were all jacked up to shit like He-Man. And it's like even Luke Skywalker, the whole point of Luke Skywalker is that he's this, you know, skinny, clueless kid in the first one who gets, you know, a bit ripped in the second one. But he never gets kind of gladiator. It was, it, was, it was kind of the era of gladiators when everybody just had to be pumped up to fuck for no apparent reason. And yet, weirdly, that's exactly the same time as they tried to relaunch Master of the Universe as that kind of... Yeah. What was it? Ye oldie He-Man or something? And they were like, they went from being muscular to like realistic. Yes. They were going in the wrong direction yet again kind of met in the middle in terms of muscle bulk. <laughs> Yeah, Action Man is something that just kind of, like you say, it went on into the 90s, and then does it still exist now? Because they did update it. So I honestly much. don't I remember know. being really eerie, but really fitting, when there's an episode of Fist of Fun, where Peter Bainham turns up right. with an Alan Milk Carton body, his friend that he's made, and it's got an <laughs> old-style Action Man head on it. And that right. just, at that point, that felt like, it, it was as if somebody had dragged out one of those old, you know, the things you used to get outside chemists, where it's like a model of a boy in calipers that you put money in to oh, make yeah. money. It felt like that. It felt like something that was from the recent past, but long ago enough to feel weird. Yeah, that's funny that because that's actually referenced in Kevin Turvey. Those things. He says, you know what happened to me just now, right? I was standing in front of the chemist, just minding a dog for the mate, and this black woman starts to take ten pence at the top of my head. <laughs> so what do you think you're doing? He said, you're not blood. Purple like you make me sick. And also got out of the corner, and he wasn't sick. He was a liar. Sorry, I have actually memorised quite a few bits of Kevin Turvey, so we could be here for a while if, if that starts happening. Bullet Man, I knew nothing about at all. And there's something very, very that'll do about it. It's a bit kind of, <laughs> like you say, it's got the, the wrestler's leotard. It's got a helmet that's somewhere between Ned Kelly, King of the Rocket Men, Four Bushman, and Zappo, Marty Wilde's mystery glam rock character from the early 70s. <laughs> that was the first thing I thought of when I saw it. It is Zappo. Yeah, 
bigger. You thought of. Yeah, it's not yeah, the first yes, thing anybody yeah. else would have thought No, yeah. not even Marty Wilde <laughs> thought of that. No, let's no. be honest about it. I don't even remember when the Bullet Man's helmet came off. Well, I, say, I never actually, I don't think, I, I, I certainly never owned a Bullet Man. I don't think I ever actually go around to play with a Bullet Man, but I think I, I definitely had a Tommy Man. I may even still have him somewhere. Apparently, Bullet Man is very, very rare now, so obviously nobody had it. No, I can't have been that popular then. Oh, extremely popular, and everybody had one and played with it and broke it and threw it away, like we're saying. Although I did find out that the rarest Action Man thing ever is the Action Man judo costume, which right. that, it's just a judo costume with some belts, but people pay insane amounts of money for it. You would think it would be that difficult to fake it. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Make your Action Man little pair of white pyjamas. But Action Man, really, what you're saying about the end of the, you know, the non-branded toy lines, the non-tie-in toy yeah. lines, Action Man, they never really tried to until Action Force came along in the 80s and had the comic and so on. Whereas there were G.I. Joe cartoons and so on in America, they never tried to do anything else with Action Man as far as I can remember. It was a toy. And that was it. Well, who knows? There might even have been a rights issue, given that it was a rebadged American line. They may not actually have had enough ownership over the concept to exploit it properly. There's something you can research, Tim. Along with your quest for who owns all TBS's back catalogue, you can find out whether Palatai actually had the image rights to the stuff they were producing. I'm wondering if there are any TBS performances by your next choice, who are a band that <laughs> I knew absolutely nothing about beyond the name until now, but let's hear them in action. <laughs> because of one of our other little shared obsessions, which is Night Network. When the last time I did this, we were talking about how there was a weird sort of stuttering beginning to overnight TV in the UK. And one of its more fascinating manifestations was, I think, about 1988 to 1989. So just after I'd left home, I was at university for the first time. This thing called Night Network, which I think some but not all of the ITV regions would show between the hours of about midnight and 4 a.m. I think it was a sort of a weird sort of compilation magazine show. They would stick Adam West Batmans on at all, all kinds of ungodly hours. And they would have sections within it. They had a section in which a very, very young Emma Freud interviewed people in bed, which then turned up exactly with Paula Yates doing it on the Big yeah. Red just a few years later. Also have a kind of jukebox jury sections where they would get like rock stars into crit new videos by various artists. And I remember Dee Snyder being particularly mean about the traffic wilderness. <laughs> <laughs> the episode that sticks in my mind is Dee Snyder hating the travel Wilburys. They would also just show rock videos and they also, they seem to champion various acts 
that weren't really getting any exposure anywhere else. So I remember this band, King Swamp, getting a lot of airplay on Night Network and nowhere else. And I remember they had two singles. The first one was called Is This Love, which was possibly a problem, of which more in a minute. The second one, which I thought was better, was called Blown Away. They were what you might call that thing, which there were a few bands of this nature right at the end of the 80s, what you might call Not Quite Rock. They were a kind of very self-consciously radio-friendly version of not-quite-hard rock. I think the band that was a template for a lot of those things was In Excess, because In Excess managed to, I think, quite successfully straddle rock and pop in a way that a lot of bands then tried to do and didn't quite pull off. They had just enough of a kind of rock star attitude for you to kind of think of them as a rock band, although a lot of what they produced was very much pop rather than rock. So they kind of they kind of got away with it. And King Swamp. They were, they were kind of going after the same kind of thing. I've, I've done a bit of research and they've discovered that their principal musical luminary, a piece of a guy called Dominic Miller, who then after this band kind of imploded after sort of one and a half albums, then became Sting's guitarist for quite a long time, for like the next 20 years or so. I think he ended up in Sting's band. But yeah, I quite liked them. I remember thinking that they showed a lot of promise. I, I thought they were they were quite good fun. And I remember I'm often kind of fascinated with the music acts that don't go anywhere, particularly the ones that are launched with quite some ballyhoo, and then it just doesn't happen for whatever reason. I mean, I'm fascinated. I think we're all fascinated by one hit wonders. I think that must be quite an an odd process to have a big hit record and for it then to slowly dawn on you that that was basically it. I wonder if you re- at what point in the process you realise. Oh, wait, that was it. <laughs> I've had a hit record and that's all I'm getting. But then I'm also kind of fascinated by the ones that get launched with quite a bit of fanfare. And then for whatever reason, it just doesn't happen. And King Swamp, there was an element of that. Although, like I said, the one place they seemed to gain a bit of traction was on Night Network. I think one of the mistakes they may have made is that their song titles are singularly unimaginative. I mean, why would you try and launch yourself in 1988 with a single called Is This Love? When the previous year there had been two singles in the charts of that title at the yeah. same time. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like, is, is that not the most boring name you could come up with for the song? You know, because as you know, there was White Snake and Alison Moyer, and they were both in. But then, of course, in 1985, yeah, 1985, there were three records in the charts called Power of Love. You know, so sometimes in the 80s, evidently people's imaginations deserted them when it came out to, to song titles. But I think that that may have not done them any favors. I think their song titles were a bit boring. And also, uh, they were possibly a bit lightweight for the proper heavy metal well no no they were let's face it they were too lightweight for the proper heavy metal crowd who at the time were sort of into Guns N' Roses and Metallica and possibly a bit too rocked for the pop scene I you know I, I sympathise with that you know falling between two stools is a skill I've perfected over the years maybe that's <laughs> where my affection for this band comes from is the whole falling between two stools thing they were too pop to be rock and too rock to be pop but I thought they were pretty decent well the thing about the bland titles because yeah I've looked at the track listings of both of their albums yeah. and they are very bland titles but the weird thing is the band included ex-members of Shriekback and Gang of Four so you got people in this band who were involved in the writing of My Spine is the Baseline and At Home He's a Tourist who obviously were no strangers to abstract titles and they thought well, let's call this song Year Zero. Now, Year Zero is the only yeah. one that I think got any traction at all, because it's in Miami Vice, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, apparently. It's in one of the later episodes of Miami Vice, yeah. Yeah, I can see their stuff working quite well in Miami Vice. 
There was a particular guitar sound in the 80s, again, which is kind of the not-quite-rock guitar sound. King Swan's guitar sound was probably sort of nice and fat and driven. It had a quite a nice guitar sound. But I'm thinking of, you know, that horrible, slightly overdriven guitar sound you get stuff on, like, Danger Zone by Kenny Luggins. You know, yeah. Peyton Lee, a Stratocaster with the game turned up to, like, four. It's that sort of really clean rock guitar which is just uh <laughs> don't even don't even bother don't even bother play, play it straight clean through the fender trend 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 reverb and go for the surf sound you know if you don't don't pretend to put overdrive on the guitar you know it's, it's just this really revolting tinny not quite distorted guitar but no i had a degree of sympathy with king swan because it's I, I was aware of them at the time and i think i also was aware of the fact that it wasn't working yeah i've, I've, I've got their first album somewhere and i i, I yeah I have a degree of I look back upon them with a degree of affection I think the lead singer Walter Ray is still doing stuff I think he's still out there performing somewhere but um well there was a feature in Q years ago about all these bands that were launched with a big fanfare weirdly King Swamp weren't covered did it but it was a fascinating thing about they spoke to people <laughs> yet again the... they fell between two stools they were too yeah. even to get it into the, the article about failures <laughs> it was a really interesting thing about because they asked all people like members of Thrashing Doves and Birdland and Blue Rondo Alaturk oh, yeah. and Mr Big and so on where do you think it went wrong? And the most interesting one was they were all blaming managers or timing or in yeah, Thrashing yeah, yeah, Dubs' yeah. case, Thatcher saying she it's liked Thatcher, them, yeah. which really did happen. Yeah. I but, remember. Yeah. Uh, the bloke from Hollywood Beyond said he, he didn't really know why it hadn't happened apart from once he was appearing on something and Malcolm McLaren just walked up to him and said, do you know, it's just as difficult arriving too early as arriving too late. Right. And in his own kind of like twisted you know i am a genius take on logic he's actually kind of pinpointed that sometimes it's just not the time yeah i mean for example i mean somebody whose career i've been following with a degree of interest since the 80s is guy chambers who is primarily famous for being robbie williams's songwriter in his early solo career but he's been kicking around since the 80s he was in world party with carl wallinger and then he split off from world party in the very early 90s and put a band which i think had one album out called the lemon trees the lemon trees Yes, yes. Yeah. Now, you may know, were they just session musicians? Because they looked like that to me. That was part of the problem. You see, Guy is an absolute songwriting genius. I know him because his mum worked with my mum in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> His mum and my mum worked together in ACAS in Liverpool in the 1980s. So I've been aware of Guy, at least since he was famous. We've never actually met. It's weird. We've never met Guy James. But I remember being quite fascinated when he put this band, you know, it was his band in the same way that, you know, the Waterboys had been Mike Scott's band and then Carl wanted to split off and put World Party. There was his band. Well, this is kind of the same thing again. Guy was splitting off and World Party now. This is his band. There were two problems with them. One, you're right. They did kind of look like a bunch of session musician pals getting together and being a band. And they did very much look like a band in search of a front man which is possibly why the first Robbie Williams band was kind of modelled on the Lemon Trees except with Robbie Williams who whatever else he may or may not be is a hell of a bloody front man out there and that's probably why that particular iteration of Robbie Williams went as ballistic as he did but also they were very self-consciously Beatley precisely two years before it was okay to be Beatley yeah because maybe because guys from Liverpool I don't know they, they had this very self-consciously certainly the first Love Is In Your Eyes first single is very very Beatles 
It's a great uh, song, that as well. Great song, great song. I still have the single actually about two feet away from me. I've just noticed. <laughs> Dreadful cover, album, but which yeah. probably didn't help. Yeah, I've got the album on CD somewhere. I'm not entirely sure where. But um, again, the album had a really bad cover, didn't it? Isn't it? Like it was them all bunched up together from above. Yes, and it's like a, a dot yes, in the yeah. middle of a white yeah, with sleeve. Just a picture yeah, of, of, of the five of them sort of standing in a little bunch of the bit. Yes, yeah, so it was kind of a fairly nondescript. Girl. But I mean, part of the trouble was a, like I say, there were kind of a bunch of musicians in search of a frontman, but also they were very self-consciously retro beating in 1992 when Nobody was so yet. Now, fast forward literally two and a half years and the entire fucking world is trying to sound <laughs> like the Beatles. I don't know. I mean, have they, you, it's, it's, you know, you, you can drive yourself nuts with this kind of counterfactual speculation, but have they cropped up maybe two years? But then again, cropped up two years later, one could argue that sort of the oasis of the world might actually make the lemon trees redundant anyway. But yeah, they were retro Beatly two years before the whole of the rest of the world was retro Beatly and as such people just didn't really take an interest. Yeah. And what do you think really did for King's Swamp them. I don't know, it just kind of just didn't happen. I think the main problem is, like I say, there were two rock for the pop fans and two pop for the rock fans. You know, they kind of looked like a rock and roll band. They were kind of, you know, styled in the manner of a rock and, of, of, of a hard rock band, but the stuff was maybe a bit lightweight for the hard rock crowd. But maybe, you know, the sort of the long hair and leather jackets look frightened off the pop kids. Who knows? Well, speaking of leather jackets, moving on to your last choice now, which I think we're going to have a lot of fun with this. <laughs> Let's hear one of the worst examples of this and move on from there. That was Rockabilly Rebel by Matchbox, a record that I knew was dreadful as a small child and I still know is dreadful now. Mitch, why have I put that there? Well, this is possibly the vaguest category that we've ever covered on this show. And it's not even a specific thing I'm going to talk about because all the specific things I'm going to bring up are stuff that you can remember. But I've never heard anybody discuss this as a whole, which is the 1970s version of the 1950s. There was so much retro 50s stuff around in the 70s that at the time, I don't recall being particularly surprised by it. But what is particularly intriguing about it is when you look at it back in retrospect, you realise this was stuff presented absolutely as nostalgic kitsch for a long bygone era. But the stuff they were reviving was less long ago than OK Computer is now. I quite like to see a comedy drama based on OK Computer, but that's another story. Yeah, they were reviving stuff that was barely 20 years ago. Why was the 1950s regarded as this, like I say, this mistily, dimly recalled, long bygone era, when basically the people reviving it, most of them would have been, you know, in their childhood at the time if not indeed in their teens. I mean, okay, bending the definition slightly because it actually tells you what year it's set in, but you know American Graffiti, George Lucas's big film before he did Star Wars, came out in, what is it, 1974? 73, I think, American Graffiti comes out. And that, its tagline was, where were you in 62? And you're like, it was 11 years ago. Surely you remember, <laughs> you know. And I can't imagine anybody coming out with a movie and I say, hey, do you remember 2009? <laughs> 
<laughs> and I said, what is it about that rock and roll era, that initial sort of 56 to 63? What is it about that that it almost immediately became this kind of source of keening nostalgia when it was still basically in, in everybody's rearview mirror? It's bizarre, isn't it? I think part of it might be, and I've, I've, I've thought about this long and hard, I think part of it might be that that initial rock and roll generation, particularly the, the rock and roll artists, when the 60s generation came along, it was just about the only instance in rock and roll history where an incoming generation of bands and acts actually replaced the incumbents. Every time that's happened since, when you've had a new generation come along, they've just been added to the mix because the 60s guys were kind of the first ones who then subsequently did proper longevity, weren't they? I mean, you've got you've got exceptions to this, like Cliff. But nobody really thinks about Cliff because he was a British rock and roller, not an American rock and roller. The American rock, again, part of it is kind of an accident of history. An awful lot of them died or ended up indisposed. So the ones who were really good at it, specifically Eddie Cochran and Buddy Holly, I've always said if Eddie Cochran and Buddy Holly had survived, then the Beatles might not have been necessary because Buddy Holly was in the process of doing to rock and roll what Paul McCartney was subsequently doing to rock and roll, i.e. make it properly melodic. Eddie Cochran was in the process of doing to rock and roll what John Lennon subsequently did to rock and roll, which is give a weird sense of humour. Admittedly, the chances of Cochran and Buddy Holly ending up in the same band together were fairly slim. But, you know, so they were both dead. Jerry Lee Lewis had been cast into Out of Darkness for shagging his 12-year-old cousin. R Little Richard had gotten religion and dropped out of the business. Chuck Berry was in jail for most of the 60s. And Elvis, after he got out of the army, just started making shitey movies and made shitey movies right up until 1968. So all the people, who, the, the, the ones who were actually worth following, with a few exceptions, the really good ones from that first generation of rock and roll were kind of off the field by the time the 60s generation took over in sort of 63, 64. So it's the only instance where, like I say, incoming generation of musicians actually supplanted their predecessors. Subsequent generations all then got added to the mix. You know, uh, the um, proggers, you know, uh, came along at the end of the 60s. Then, the you know, the 60s blues boomers stuck around and some of them sort of then became prog. And then, you know, I mean, the funniest thing, I remember David Hepworth saying this on the Word podcast many years ago now. But the ironic thing about punk's attitude when they turned up in 76, 77 was saying to the proggers, yeah, round too long, man. Talking to actually who'd literally been putting records out for like nine years by this point. And then when the punks turned up with like, yeah, you guys have been around too long, they then turned up and then just never fucking left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the punks turned up because apparently, you know, having hit records for nine years is too long, man. And then they just, they're all still fucking in early, you know, 45 years later. But that, that, there is that weird thing that the 50s generation, but the 50s rock and roll in particular, is kind of the only musical movement that did actually come and then go. It lasted and then it was over. Whereas all subsequent musical genre, you know, even things like, you know, the way people played lead guitar. Obviously, you know, at the time we recorded this, Eddie Van Halen just died. And, and like there is a definite watershed of the first Van Halen album in 1978. You can there, there are in much the same way that you could say that there is a post Jimi Hendrix and a pre Jimi Hendrix for lead guitar. There is also a pre and post Eddie Van Halen sound for lead guitar. He sort of redefined the way lead guitar is going to be played for, a, you know, another 10, 15 years after their first album came out. But you've all 
also there's a, a 1950s lead guitar style that gets lost with the advent of the blues boomers in the 60s with the advent of Clapton and subsequently Jeff Beck and then subsequently Hendrix and you know you get that blues based previous to that you had a kind of figure picking lead guitar style as you know mainly embodied by guys like Scotty Moore and Chet Atkins and everything and that kind of gets lost it gets occasionally revived for sort of nostalgia purposes but, you know, it, it, it is interesting that, that rock and roll, the first generation of rock and roll, it's just about the only kind of, well, certainly in, the, in you know, the rock and roll era, which it, it, it's established, it's the only time you had a musical movement that had a beginning, a middle and an end. By 64, it was over. And I think maybe that's why it becomes the source of nostalgia really soon thereafter. Because it's very identifiable, it's very specifically identified with that era in a way that all other musical genres aren't so much. Because you have their heyday, you know, you obviously have the, you know, the Mersey beat and the blues boom has its heyday in the in, in the in the mid sixties, but it, then it never subsequently really goes away. Punk has its heyday in the mid late seventies, but then it never really goes away. Whereas rock and roll, original rock and roll, kind of lasted for about seven years and then it was gone. So maybe that's why you, you, you know, before it's even cold in the ground in the mid 70s, you have all this nostalgia for that period. So, you know, the obvious examples like, you know, Happy Days. I mean, even in this country, you have stuff like Shawaddy Waddy, which, you know, I mean, in many respects, in, you know, in retrospect, Shawaddy Waddy are the most 70s band imaginable. But what they were doing was was a deliberate 50s revival thing, even if it didn't extend to their haircut. You know, they had the drape coats, they had the big crepe shoes and they had, the, you know, that sort of, you know, Frankie Valley harmonies going on but then you get that really weird thing where you get the 70s version of the 50s with stuff yeah. like Greece, which is ostensibly a 50s nostalgia movie based on a 50s nostalgia show but couldn't be more bloody 70s if it tried i mean even things like its theme tune you know the frankie valley grease is the word theme that's not even trying to be 50s no. you know it's 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 it, there's, there's, there isn't a single 50s sound in there now i don't know whether that's because obviously i never saw the original stage show you know with richard gear playing the john travolta part as alderman became so i don't know whether that's kind of meant to be out with the narrative and it's meant to be framing it from the point of view of the 70s audience you know here is a show in the 70s with the 70s opening number and now we go back to the 50s but you know it's 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 not even an attempt at a 50s song that it's just a straightforward bit in 1978 disco so you get this i don't know it's it's, it's kind of like sort of the late 80s attempt at 60s psychedelia that you get with bands like all about eve and everything where you know they're they're, they're so 80s in their own way but you tend to forget that what they're trying to do is you know and again i mean i've talked about this when i did my radio show about bob dylan that weirdly of course you know while the greenwich village folk scene feels like the most 1960 thing it's imaginable at the time what they thought they were doing was reviving woody guthrie they thought they were doing a sort of a 30s revival you know so it's, it's weird the way sometimes nostalgia isn't apparent until oddly enough you get a bit of distance on it but yeah it's bizarre to think of how much nostalgia there was for a time that was so recent yeah and there were so many examples of it i mean one thing i'm obviously I had no idea about it at the time but i'm very aware of now is there was a radio one show that went on for years called it's rock and roll which right. was a rock and roll revival show where they 
played oldies alongside well bands like Matchbox, and I don't think they ever had Chew Waddy Waddy on, let's be honest. About <laughs> it. But it's Radio 1. They weren't thinking, oh, we'd better cater for that old man audience that are harking back to records they bought when they still bought music. Clearly, yeah. there was a young audience as well. And yeah, it was off the back of things like Grease, but again, you know, Grease was a stage show. Did you know Happy Days wasn't actually supposed to be a series at first? Was it not? It was part of the first one was part of an anthology series, which I think was also where Wait Till Your Father Gets Home, the Hanna-Barbera thing started. Right, right, but right. But it's supposed to be a one-off, and it was so popular, and also, by chance, it had the kid from American Graffiti in it. That somebody yeah. said, hey, there's a series in that, and they made it into a series, and it's massive. But that was yeah. an accident, rather than thinking, ooh, people are getting nostalgic for the 50s. So it just seemed to fall into place. And I think it's to do, part of it is to do with, that would have been around the time sort of rock and roll themed films started showing up on TV more often. I mean, it's that famous thing about right. which recording session was it? The Beatles abandoned when someone called them up and said, the girl can't help it, it's going to be on TV. And they went, oh, right. around the Ringos and watch it. Yeah, it's entirely possible. Well, the thing is, you know, back in those days, when we was on TV that hadn't been on general release for like 10 years. It was your first yeah. chance to see the damn thing in 10 years. And it was your only chance to see it until the TV got around to showing it again, which might be in another five or six years. So yeah, that was that was a big deal back then. Well, you know, we could go on at length about the fact that the one thing that our kids will never understand is the concept of missing a TV show. You know, if you were not sat down at the moment it was broadcast, then that was it. You had missed it. When I was a kid, certainly there were, you know, didn't have VCRs. It was, there was no plus one. There was no iPlayer. There were none of that, you know. And it wasn't even ever going to come out on VG, VHS or DVD or any of the other things. If you were not sat down in front of the TV at the moment that show was broadcast, then you did not get to see that show. It's as simple as that. But, I mean, it is worth bearing in mind. You're talking about, you know, like the Radio 1 show and everything. They, obviously, they weren't just catering for the old guys. But the old guys would only have been in, like, their late 30s. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? The, the, the original audience for rock for, for rock and roll in the mid-70s would have been people who might have turned 40, but possibly not. Well, that's linked to... There's always that thing about... You know the idea that punk dismissed everything that came before it? And yet, if you look at... Yeah. There are some acts like Pete Townsend's solo stuff around that time, like Cliff Richard, bizarrely. Yeah. There were people who were influenced more by New Wave than by punk. But they were probably seen as, like, really old trying to get on the bandwagon. But they were yeah. probably only just cruising 30 at that point. Exactly, of course they were. I mean, one of the things which is crazy is the fact that, I mean, if you cast your mind back to the 80s, I mean, that people couldn't stop going on about the fact that the Rolling Stones have been going for 20 years. <laughs> 20 years, man! Like, they're still together, and only one of them's, like, even dead. 20! Imagine! <laughs> 20 years! That's got Oh, man, imagine being in the same band for 20... It's like Blur have been having hit records for over... For 30 years. And nobody mentions that, you know. Kylie Minogue has been having hit records for 32 years. <laughs> and nobody ever mentions that now. I think it's possibly because that 60s generation, like I said, were the, were the first ones to do longevity. You know, they were the first ones to really... So they were the first ones anybody really noticed. Whereas when subsequently, you know, bands... I mean, you know, the Foo Fighters have been having hit records now for 25 years. You know, never mind Nirvana. Nirvana's nearly 30 years ago. Just Dave's band after Nirvana. The Foo's have been having records for 25 years. Mariah Carey's first hit was 30 years ago this summer. 
Vision of Life came out in summer 1990. Nobody ever talks about longevity anymore because it's just kind of taken for granted that if you don't die, you'll keep going, you know, and you'll have whatever requisite surgery to keep yourself looking presentable. But other than that, you'll just keep going. Whereas the 60s generation, when they were the first ones to keep going, everybody was agog with the idea, you know, when the Stones got back together at the end of the 80s for the Steel Wheels, I was like, oh my God, 25 years after their first hit record. It's just like, now you just take it for granted that bands lasted 25 years. But part of it could be that until you know i'd say it really was only in the 80s where you started to get what's basically the perpetual present that we have now where everything's available uh-huh. all the time yeah, yeah i think the rock and roll stuff i mean if you look at the kenny everett video show which you know again it's only from the late 70s there's a slot on that every week where he shows an oldie you know rock and roll performance from i don't know oh boy or something from the late 50s yeah even in that context it looks like something from another century because, you know, you've got Kenny Everett with his high-tech picture-in-picture zany comedy yeah. going on around it. Then you've got this crackly film of, like, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates or something. Because it wasn't in your face all the time around then. Maybe, no. like Maybe it's like the way I felt like William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton Doctor Who stories, when I first became properly interested in Doctor Who, were impossibly long ago. They might yes. as well have been written by Shakespeare. You know? yes. When you think now, the David Tennant ones are longer ago than they were then. That's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, oh, you can drive yourself nuts with that one. I mean, like, the other day it occurred to me that sort of, you know, uh, we're now further away from The Empire Strikes Back than The Empire Strikes Back was from The Battle of Britain. Not the movie The Battle of Britain, the Battle of Britain. The example of that that I used to do, because I taught a show a few years ago about the Beatles, and about one of the most amazing facts to get your head around is about the Beatles' entire recording career lasted less than seven years. Whereas when you look back at it now, it seems to last decades. Because you look at that, you know, that, that footage of them singing some other guy in the cabin, it looks like it was shot during the war. Whereas, you know, when, the, when they're up on the roof doing Get Back, it looks like about 1982. You know, so it's, it's like, well, no, actually, the whole thing lasts less than seven years. That, I think it's the tr- transition from black and white to colour makes a big psychological impact. There's a bit of footage currently doing the rounds on Twitter and Facebook, which is uh, just a very, very early bit of movie reel of a bunch of people in Paris in 1896 having a snowball fight. But what they've done is they put it through the same filter that Peter Jackson put all his, his, his World War One footage through, where it slows it down to the proper frame rate and then smooths out the jitters and then they've colorized it. And it suddenly looks so much more real. And it's a bunch of people having a snowball fight, you know, in 1896. But suddenly it's so much more relatable. There's something about that transition from black and white to colour that makes things feel a lot longer ago than they actually are. And yet, ironically, the Beatles went right back to rock and roll as, you know, they were pretty much petering out themselves. The Let It Be sessions are just full of them trying to revive their early songs you know one after 909 and all that yeah yeah you know doing rock and roll covers and they were going on about little richard all the time around then and how ironic it is that they missed that by a couple of years they missed that whole big 50s revival yeah well in fact i mean you know because one of the things about the beatles is you can spot stuff on their even their early to mid stuff which already feels a bit retro so i'll cry instead of hard day's night is basically a kind of a rockabilly song and that to me already feels like they knew they were doing something a little bit retro compared to the rest of the album 
that just that one in particular just feels like it, it's already something a bit self-consciously retro about it. But, you know, it, it, it is. I mean, I think what the Beatles are doing for the Get Back sessions is they're just desperately trying to reconnect with each other. You know, they're, they're desperately trying to think, you know, you know, what was it we liked about each other to begin with? They're, they're clutching at sort of, you know, the, the, the straws of quarrymen nostalgia, just trying to reconnect with each other and, and failing to do so in a quite, you know, obvious way. And they did actually, well, to varying extents, they tried to get in on it as well solo because John obviously did the rock and roll album. Paul, when was Paul? Paul ever not dressing up as a teddy boy at any given point. He loves it. You probably have to physically stop him from doing it. I'm not so sure about George. I'm sure Ringo probably did the odd 50 Well, Ringo, was, in, Ringo was in that a bit day. Oh, of course he was. Yes. Well, there you go. There's another example of it. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be the day again. That's sort of... Uh, well, I mean, it's funny because uh, I'm slightly obsessed. Not so much about that'll be the day, but we starred us, the second one. Just because I think it's a classic example of you wouldn't get away with it now. I can't imagine... The, of all, you know, I can't imagine Ollie Murs <laughs> now doing a movie about how the pop industry's bullshit and everybody in it's a fucking psychopath. <laughs> right? <laughs> but David Essex made a movie in 1973 about how the rock world is bullshit and everybody in it is a fucking psychopath. You know, <laughs> uh, and, and, and plays like just about the least sympathetic character imaginable. He's just an arsehole, the guy he plays in those movies. You know, I mean, he's not even roguish. He's just a prick. Yeah, they're amazing, though. So, but you're right that that'll be the day, was that, 1972 or something? So that's, you know, again, keen nostalgia for an era which at the time was barely a decade ago. And, of course, some of it was just people telling you, ah, oh, this is important, show respect. I mean, why on earth did they have an Alan Freed biopic, American Hot Wax, aimed at kids? You know, that's, that is quite a little bit patronising, I think. Just a bit, yes, just a bit. <laughs> Do you think we'll ever get the equivalent about Butch Vig producing the father album? <laughs> <laughs> I can see somebody doing a Simon Cowell biopic in about 20 years' time, as long as it's not an authorised version, which would be OK. Well, I'm sure you'll have some ideas or songs for it to be honest with you <laughs> Mitch it's been brilliant thank you cheers buddy see you soon Not On Your Telly by Tim Worthington from Fish to Fun to Ski Boy the ultimate guide to the TV that time forgot find out more timworthington.org <laughs>